Good evening, good day, everybody. Welcome to the latest, newest episode of the Ask a Visit Show. I hope you're all doing very well. Um, I know there's a cricket match going on, India-Pakistan, and I'm thankful to all of you, those of you who have chosen to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, let's see who all is there with us. I can see Abhi, Rishabh, Alpha, Patel, Rudrik, Suvankit, Abhay, again, Pranay, Rishi, Anirudh, Srinivas, Prabal, uh, Hexim, Bambuzilis, Rishabh, Kumar, Piyush, Divesh, Varsha Singh, Karan, Alavat, Man, Dargadat, Eyes, Bonfire, Manav, Harbion Wheels, The Walk, Tatake, KS Edits, Yashrana, Manmat, Barkha, Batra, Arnavo, Sketch with Sneha, Sagar, The Unknown One, Rithik, Bimla, Suvankit, Invincible, Poonam, Kumar, Rishi, Divesh, Riddles, Piyush, Dr. Nishchai, Pragnish, Mosam, Akash Rathor, Sanat, Jasjeet Singh, Anuj, Trupti, GK, Om, 2K World, Happy Worker, Explorer, and lots of other people. Good evening. Good day to all of you, wherever you are. Uh, uh, first of all, we begin. before we begin, uh, let me just uh, tell you that uh, on the occasion of Teacher's Day, my course, the price is decreasing starting 12 p.m. tonight, uh, India time. It will be down to 999 for 24 hours only. So in case you were uh, waiting for a price drop or anything, or you're wondering whether you should buy it, if you if you wish to go ahead and buy it, the price will be at 999 for 24 hours, starting 12 midnight tonight, India time. So in case you want it, go ahead and do that. Right. Uh, so let's go into the questions. Before I begin another thing, if there's some noise in the background, please forgive me. Uh, there is the festival going on. Uh, what is it? The Maha Ganesh Utsav in India. The festivals are very intense. Everyone competes with each other to have the most intense sound levels. And it goes through any soundproofing that you can imagine <laughs> or have. And I don't actually have a soundproof uh, studio. So uh, do forgive me if there is some noise that creeps through. All right. Let's get into the questions. What are the questions for today? Today we discuss geopolitics, current affairs, history, and various other matters. Let's see, what's the what's question number one? Lakshya says, do you think the mindset of Russian women is different from the mindset of Western women? More importantly, are they traditional and family-oriented like Bharatiya women? In order to deepen our ties with Russia, we should start doing inter-ethnic marriages between us. I call upon my Bharatiya brothers to play a role in nation building. Uh, Lakshya, I, I, as far as I know, Russian women are more Eastern or more traditional than Western women, uh, the attitudes of Western women uh, are kind of not present among Russian women. They are more uh, traditional minded, etc. as far as I know. Yeah. So in case you would like to uh, participate in geopolitics and contribute to nation building by marrying a Russian lady, I, uh, I, I would say go ahead. If there are any Russian eligible Russian young ladies watching, please know that there is this gentleman, young man, Lakshya, who is willing. Uh, reach out if you want and uh, any other Bharatiya brothers or sisters who would like to participate in this, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Yes, that's one way in which every citizen can, can participate in nation building and forging geopolitical relations between uh, friendly nations. Go ahead. Okay, question over. Yeah. All right. A whole lot of questions. Aditya says the government, Indian government, 
is removing St. George's Cross from the Navy. Looks like the government is watching my podcast. Uh, Abhinav says, I'm waiting to see your reaction on the Indian Navy flag change, which you mentioned long before. Happy. Yeah, I'm happy too. Saha says, I distinctly remember somebody asking you about the Union Jack insignia of the Indian Navy last year. It was about the St. George's Cross. Yeah. Why we still have it when, when it will be changed. And now, within a year, that happened. What are your thoughts and what does it mean at a geopolitical level? Is it a sign of better things to come? Edward Snowden says, it seems the Prime Minister listened to your podcast and decided to change the Indian Navy ensign. Thank you, sir. So, uh, I think it's a great thing. Uh, I have spoken about this multiple times, if I'm not mistaken, about the uh, colonial artifacts that are still present in our symbolism, in our insignia, navy, and uh, many more things. It's not just about the uh, symbolism. It's about uh, the various practices and whatnot. You know, the entire culture when it comes to the armed forces is very colonial, especially when it comes to the officer class. Yeah, Many of the practices, traditions and all that, they date back to the colonial times when the British were ruling India. And the Indian armed forces are a creation of the British. So many of those traditions continue because nobody wanted to mess with what was already working. The Indian armed forces, obviously, they serve the nation and we are very much proud of that. Yeah, nobody can dare question their commitment and their uh, patriotism. That, that's not a, that's not ever going to be in question. The only thing is that these traditions are still continuing, and that kind of is not a good thing. Yeah, it's been more than 70, 75 years now since uh, India got its uh, so-called independence. Yeah, <laughs> 1947 transfer of power. So isn't it high time we remove all colonial artifacts? Yes, aren't we a proud, independent civilization? So, uh, what's my thought about the removing of the St. George's Cross, that, that red cross from the Navy? Great job. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate what the Prime Minister has done. I'm very grateful, incredibly grateful that this horrific, uh, like the Prime Minister said, this, this, uh, this uh, remnant of slavery has been finally expunged, extricated, excised from the, the flag of the Indian Navy. I'm so glad that happened. I'm slow. I'm, I'm really happy to see that. And now we have uh, an indigenous symbol uh, on the naval flag that dates back to the Maratha Navy. Uh, so it's, it's a very good thing. Very good to, to, that these things are happening. Um, we need to decolonize, and like the Prime Minister said in the 15th of August uh, in his address to the nation, we need to decolonize by the, by, the, by the time the next 25 years are done. Fully decolonize, completely, thoroughly, entirely. So yeah, I, I, this is a good beginning. What are the geopolitical... Uh, what does it mean on a geopolitical level? It, it's, it sends a message that we are now uh, more proud of who we are. Until now, we have been kind of a slave-minded nation. Yeah, it's true. People uh, refer to the Indian slave-mindedness and all. There is a significant element of truth to that. And if you remove all these symbols of oppression and slavery and colonialism, it kind of frees up people's mindset. They don't have to see that anymore. And that and younger kids who are, who are born today will never see that. And that's great. So what we are signaling at a geopolitical level is that we are now uh, out of the shadow of colonialism. In the past, if an Indian warship went to Australia, went to Singapore, went to the UK or went anywhere in the world, they would be still flying that colonial flag, the flag which has the, the, the St. George's Cross, that is the English flag on it. That tells the whole world that we are still colonized, right? Or we're still very proud of, of having been slaves to the British for two and a half or three centuries. Yeah. So that is now gone. So it signals pride in, in being independent. And the throwing off of the last, uh, not the last, but some of the shackles of colonialism, it frees up your mind. It will uh, 
probably give a whole different mindset to the sailors, especially the new sailors who join. Yeah, because they will never see that uh, that uh, flag of slavery. It's great. It's great overall. Geopolitically, it is a signal to the entire world that we are now no longer bound by the shackles of colonialism, which we still were until recently. And we still are. And actually, it's still continuing. There are so many levels at which colo mental colonization uh, happens. And it's still there throughout the Indian system, the Indian state, the Indian institutions. But this is a good beginning. It's especially relevant in the armed forces. Yeah. So... Uh, I don't know if the government is watching my podcast or not. I think they don't need to watch my podcast. They would have wanted to do this themselves at, a, at various levels. And it was, it was, uh, it's something that coincided with the with the commissioning of the indigenous aircraft carrier. So that probably was taken as the as an appropriate opportune time to make this change. So great job. And uh, yeah, we need to keep keep uh, this going. We need to eradicate all vestiges of colonialism and slavery from our institutions, from our system, from our minds in the next 25 years. So this is a great start. Very, uh, very happy to see this. Yeah. Okay, Aditi says, weren't the Cholas the greatest seafarers Bharata ever witnessed in its known history? Yet a respected Chhatrapati Shivaji is honored with the title Father of the Naval Forces. Please tell us about Bharat's naval history. Ajay says, have you seen the new Indian Navy flag? They took a symbol from the Maratha Navy, but it's not a blue water navy. Okay. The most powerful navy was created by the Chola Empire. It is, is it not the sick mentality of North Indian politicians to choose and only promote their culture and customs? Yeah. And I had seen some other uh, comment, various other comments from some people saying that um, that India has been betrayed because the proper Maratha flag has not been used with this with the saffron color and all that. So on the one hand, people from certain regions. Some people feel that we have been betrayed because the Chola insignia have not been used. Some people feel betrayed because the uh, proper Maratha flag has not been used. Here's the deal, my dear friends. You can't please everybody. Uh, the Cholas, whether the greater sea, greatest seafarers Bharat witness, we don't know. We don't know. There could have been greater... See, it's like this. Before the British uh, took over the country, yeah, by various means, the greatest navy that we had was the Maratha navy, which was founded, you could say, by the great Lord Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj, right? We know that. And then we had great admirals like Kanoji Angre and, and various other great uh, warriors and heroes of India, and naval heroes. So the Maratha navy was the last great Indian navy. Now what we have is the is the continuation of the British colonial navy, but that's fine. Now we are putting our own flag on that. It's the it, it's a it's a, it's a version of the Maratha. In, uh, naval flag, right? Now, before the Marathas, indeed, the Cholas are the greatest navy, and they, they actually conquered the whole of, more or less, the whole of Southeast Asia up to the Philippines using this great navy. So, some could say, some people say, why is uh, why is Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj called the father of the Indian navy? Why not uh, Rajendra Chola or Rajaraj Chola? Well, before the Cholas, you had Samudra Gupta who had a massive navy. He he had a great navy. So, why not him? Why not Samudra Gupta? Why not the Gupta Empire and the Gupta Emperors? Why why do we not call them the uh, fathers of the Indian naval forces? Before the Guptas, you had the, 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 the Kalinga Empire, the seafarers, who Indianized the entirety of Southeast Asia way before the Cholas. The Cholas were a thousand years ago. Kalinga was two thousand years before the Cholas. And they traveled to Southeast Asia, Asia by ship. So should they not be called the fathers of the Indian Navy, the Kalinga, the great Kalinga uh, people of Kalinga? 
Yeah. And before Kalinga, we had <laughs> the, the Vedic age, which describes in, in the Rig Veda, there are descriptions, which, which Vedic text, I don't remember. There are descriptions in the Vedic texts of ships with a hundred oars. That's a massive ship. Yeah. So why not the Vedic people? And if you talk about the Vedic people being the father of the father of the Indian Navy, well, the Vedic people are the ancestors of all Indians. So there we go. Stop fighting and stop nitpicking about this goddamn things. That's all we do. Fight among each other. Why not this? Why not that? Why not this? Why not that? Enough of this nonsense. It doesn't matter. We need to remove the colonial symbols from the Indian naval flag. It's done. Now, the government decided to put the Maratha thing. Great. We are all, in some way or the other, uh, we, we all bear the legacy of the Marathas. Right? So, so what's the problem? Why do we have to keep fighting amongst each other all the goddamn time? It's just annoying and it's frustrating to see Indians fighting among each other for little symbols. Whatever symbol has been thrown out, that is what you should celebrate. And whatever symbol has been, has been used to replace it, it's an Indian symbol. Own it and take pride in it. That's it. Enough of this fighting. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Rajat says, Bharat's first aircraft carrier, first indigenously built aircraft carrier, INS Vikrant, has finally been deployed. What's your take on the same? Is it going to be an asset geopolitically and or militarily? Ananda says, INS Vikrant is finally commissioned. I know you've criticized building aircraft carriers. You focus on expanding the lethality of, by submarines and frigates and all that, rather than concentrating on aircraft carriers. Still, do you see any positive outcome of this development? If yes, what are they? And uh, how would you like the Indian Navy to go about in the next 25 years? Okay. So first of all, let's look at it in this way. Uh, it is a fantastic thing that the indigenously built and developed and yeah constructed aircraft carrier, INS Vikrant, has been deployed, commissioned. It is now fully operational. It's a matter of great pride for, for all Indians. Understand the achievement. There are only four or five nations that are capable of building a warship of that size and that capability. Now India has done it. India has demonstrated it can do it. It's a fantastic achievement as a nation from a technological perspective, from a military perspective. So India has the capability to, to build giant warships. And you, you can take the same thing forward. The, the, the INS Vikrant is a, what, what's the tonnage it, display, it displays? 40,000 tons, 45,000 tons. You can extend the same technology and make an 80,000 ton warship. So it tells you what India is capable of, what India's engineers and uh, builders, etc., scientists, uh, all that, uh, naval uh, designers and naval builders are capable of. It's fantastic. So it 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 uh, tells the world that India is at that level, the top, the elite uh, engineering, naval engineering nations in the world. Yeah, we we are we are there. It's great. Uh, is it is this aircraft carrier going to be an asset, geopolitical or militarily? See, let's understand the the role. And, and the relevance of aircraft carriers. Aircraft carriers, when was the last time an aircraft carrier was used in, 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 in an actual hot war between evenly matched nations? Second World War. That's the last time aircraft carriers show, uh, saw proper combat between two evenly matched forces. And look at the casualties on both sides. How many aircraft carriers are at the bottom of the seas? Yeah. So aircraft carriers are difficult to uh, defend in the when, when you are evenly matched. Aircraft carriers have a certain relevance. They are very relevant in peacetime when you are a massive nation and you want to project force 
in various parts of the world. So let's say you are the United States, you are a superpower, and you want to demonstrate to smaller nations that we are the big dog out here, and you dare not bark at us. So then you send your aircraft carrier sailing around. Yeah? And that nation knows. They dare not touch it or do anything about it. And the very size and scale and the number of aircraft it, it carries, it is intimidating. It's scary. A single ship can, uh, can essentially annihilate a whole nation. That sort of thing. But will the Americans dare to send an aircraft carrier close to Chinese-held waters? They do it in the the Taiwan Strait, South China Sea, etc. But you know, when when there is when there are military tensions, they will keep their aircraft carriers far away from there. So aircraft carriers are great as a show of force, as a as a show of how powerful you are. But they don't really uh, they are really hard to defend. There are so many different ways in the 21st century that you can take out an aircraft carrier. Yeah. So in a hot war, you actually have to hide aircraft carriers. That's how it is. So aircraft carriers, geopolitically, etc., it's, it's good for patrolling and projecting power and, you know, things like that. You cannot really use it in a war unless you are, want to take a massively significant risk of losing this enormous aircraft and all the uh, enormous warship and whatever aircraft are, are, are sitting on top of that. So uh, I hope we are not going... So we how many do we have now? We've got two aircraft carriers. Uh, the Navy wants a third one. It says, see, typically in, in, uh, in the Navy, if you have three ships, one is going to be operational, one is going to be traveling to, to its deployment or from the deployment back to the port, and one will be undergoing refits. So if you have three ships, only one will be operational at a time, typically on average. So if you have 300 ships, you can understand that about 100 are currently deployed and operational. Right? That's how it is. So if you have two aircraft carriers, it's possible sometimes both will be under undergoing refits or repairs or overhauling. So typically you would want three aircraft carriers. And in that case, one will be definitely deployed at, at all times. That's how it is. So the Navy is saying we want more. I think it's not a good idea to invest billions of dollars worth of money in building a new aircraft carrier. One more. Yeah. Maybe in the future, when India crosses the ten trillion dollar economy mark, then most nations will be will be unwilling to antagonize India. That's when you can have one more aircraft carrier and project power. Right now, India needs submarines. Submarines are way more lethal. That's what um, the the late General Bipin Rawat said. We need submarines, but yeah, well, some people in the Navy they they they, they enjoy the prestige that an aircraft carrier gives them. Yeah. So it's also about the, the, the fact that the, an aircraft carrier is an extremely prestigious warship. You are the commander of an aircraft carrier. You have the highest prestige in the Indian Navy and one of the highest prestige, most prestigious positions in the entire Indian military. That's great. So people aspire to have that. So if you have more aircraft carriers, more people can do that. There is an element of selfishness in every individual. Understand that. But from the national interest perspective, we want the Navy to be as lethal as possible. And you want to distribute that lethality, not concentrate the lethality into, into large warships. E imagine that you have a massive amount of investment just in one warship. Somebody takes that out, it's, you, you lost one third of your navy right there. But if you can distribute that lethality across the oceans, yeah, let's take a look at the map to understand what I mean by distributed lethality. Yeah, let's see. Let's take a look at the map. Where's the map? Here's the map. Come on, bring it on. So look at the Indian Ocean region. That is the region of interest for India. From the Malacca Strait over here 
to the uh, gulf of aden to the hormuz strait the gulf the persian gulf and the greater indian ocean region which includes the maldives the diego garcia region and so on and so forth and all of that is india's region uh, region of interest the, the indian strategic planners etc they call it india's strategic backyard well you can give it any name you want but unless you actually own it you, it will not be your strategic backyard and how do you own something by patrolling it constantly if you have one massive ship, ship can you patrol this entire region no but if you invest in lots of smaller vessels so smaller ships naval vessels missile boats submarines then you, then you can have lots of different assets distributed all across this region constantly patrolling right and if you're patrolling you're visible and everyone knows just by seeing your presence there that this belongs to you this there are so many indians out here which means this is indian territory or india this is india's backyard but if there's only two or three ships in the entire region then well no one cares they will not consider this to be india's backyard and they will they will be emboldened and encouraged to encroach into these regions like the chinese are doing so what india needs is numbers numbers quantity quantity has a quality of its own that's what joseph salin said he was right we need quantity with quality first build quantity we need lots of submarines we i, I say we need at least 60 70 maybe 100 submarines why not get cheap submarines get cheap submarines build cheap submarines a submarine does not need to cost 500 million dollars or 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 billion dollars you can get a 100 million dollar submarines and i'll speak about, about this again yeah and some people say it's not possible to have a submarine of at 100 100 million dollars what are you people smoking you people know nothing thoda research karne ka right so here it is this is a massive region we need numbers we need quantity we need to patrol this entire region in in large numbers 24 by 7 imagine you are you are a policeman and your job is to uh, is, is is to your job is to uh, uh, keep the peace in your neighborhood you can keep the peace only if you have five or six different police cars patrolling it 24 by 7 but if there's no police car visible there then the the criminals will be emboldened right imagine there's a city in which there is no police patrolling at all well then crime will rise but if you have lots of police patrolling 24 by 7 very visible then crime will go down obviously similarly in the indian ocean region if there are lots of indian warships always visible then automatically it becomes your 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 strategic backyard and your enemies whoever they are they are your adversaries will be scared to come out in numbers or even they will they will want to come out very very you know very silently and stealthily Uh, they will not be emboldened to just make an appearance and 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 push people around like the chinese are doing right now so india needs numbers 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 in the next 25 years india needs to build numbers lots of different kinds of warships not just one class destroyers corvettes corvettes submarines especially the submarine is the most effective 21st century naval warship it's not visible it's very hard to detect it's it's it can stay deep underwater it can attack at will it can it can uh, launch cruise missiles ballistic missiles torpedoes it can take out warships it can take out cities it can take out ports it can even launch nukes it can do everything and it's it's very well hidden and camouflaged it takes very good technology to be able to detect and track submarines only a few nations can do that so india needs to invest in submarines and also on surface vessels not aircraft carriers for the price of one aircraft carrier you can have uh, i don't know A hundred missile boats. Missile boats are so cheap, disposable, and they can be so deadly. Look at the last engagement India had with Pakistan. What is it? Nineteen seventy-one. The Karachi Harbour. India took out the Karachi Harbour using missile boats. Cheap, cheap missile boats. That is the kind of distributed lethality we are talking about. 
as cost efficient as possible, as numerous as possible, and as deadly as possible, distributed over a wide surface area of the ocean. That's what India needs to do. You build aircraft carriers, you're going to pour in so many of your funds right into just one warship. Yeah. We already have unsinkable aircraft carriers. Let me demonstrate what those are. What are the unsinkable aircraft carriers? The entire Andaman archipelago, each of these islands can be an unsinkable aircraft carrier. You can make, you know, air force bases here. You cannot sink these islands. Similarly, in the Lakshadweep islands, you have more unsinkable aircraft carriers. You build some naval bases, uh, air force bases there. You may have to do a little bit of reclaiming of the seas, you know, constructing, uh, extending the islands like the Chinese have been doing. Sure, why not do that? So that is what India needs to do. We already have unsinkable aircraft carriers. Why, why do we need to build, invest billions of dollars on these massive warships? Use that money to create actual distributed lethality. Right. So that's what I would say. That's where India needs to go in the next 25 years. I hope it happens. And uh, yeah. Okay. Aman Raj says, Jahind, Jahind, sir. Uh, we now know that the lift of the INS Vikrant cannot fit the Rafale. So we will have to forcefully fly by the F 18. Why was this not considered while designing it? Was it short, a short sightedness? Mm. The INS Vikrant has two lifts, you know, elevators for. So in an, let's take a look at what this uh, uh, warship looks like. INS Vikrant. Uh, let us put that on the screen so that we can understand what we are discussing over here. INS Vikrant. So uh, do we have a schematic or something? Uh, okay, so typically this is what the aircraft carrier looks like. If you can see, uh, it's a multi-storied ship and you will have aircraft right now it's it's it doesn't have any aircraft on it right now but you will have aircraft on the uh, surface level of the ship you know parked over there and you will have some aircraft that that will be under the surface inside the ship and to those will be the aircraft that need some refits or or some some small repairs or whatever yeah some overhauling so those aircraft will be taken below the deck and all that work will be done under the uh, below the deck so there will be compartments and hangars below the deck where you can keep some aircraft and you can uh, work on them the mechanics can work on them so to be, bring those aircraft from under the deck to the uh, actual flight deck there will be a couple of elevators so i'm not sure if they are visible here or not the thing is this, these elevators have a certain width. Now we know that the Rafale, its wingspan, the, the breadth of the wings is about, I don't know, 10.9 meters, something like that. Yeah. And the F-18 is, is 9 point something meters and so on. So the, the uh, elevators of our aircraft carrier, the latest one, are, I believe, too narrow to accommodate the Rafale. So... Unless the French can provide Rafale aircraft which have foldable wings, the Rafale, unless the French can do that, we will not be able to put Rafales on this aircraft carrier. That's for sure. The F-18 is just barely able to make it by a few centimeters here and there. So even that would not be actually a good idea. So what, what kind of aircraft would actually fit comfortably in these elevators? It would either be the MiG-29, which India already uses, yeah, or a future version of the Tejas fighter plane. So there was a, a deck-based fighter that India uh, 
a naval version of the Tejas was proposed. It was it was the a prototype or one or two prototypes were built, and uh, they were able to land on these aircraft carriers. They, that was demonstrated the ability. So maybe that, but the Navy has rejected the the naval version of the Tejas. So that seems to be out of the question. And maybe a future twin engine deck based fighter that is currently under development. You know, a future version uh, of the Tejas family aircraft. That sort of thing. So. Either India buys a few F-18s, 30, 40, whatever, yeah, American aircraft, which are reasonably good, or India continues with the MiG-29s, which are, well, it's a good aircraft, but it's a kind of, kind of old aircraft, yeah? So that's the two options India has right now. Either invest in more MiG-29s or buy the F-18 and make it somehow work on, that, on those narrow elevators. Or ask the French to provide Rafales that have folding wings, in that in which case everything works fine. Maybe the French can do that. Or then wait for the uh, twin-engine deck-based fighter, which is another seven, eight years in the... I don't know how, how long it'll take. Maybe by 2030, 2029, 2028, I'm not sure. So these are the options we have. Now, what what's the reason why we, we developed, uh, we, we designed or we built these elevators, these lifts that were narrow and too narrow for the Rafale? I'm not sure what was the reason for that. Uh, maybe the, the 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 aircraft carrier was designed a long time ago. I am not sure what the history is, but that's where we are. Maybe it was on purpose. Maybe we did not want certain aircraft, or maybe there is some agreement between India and France that they will provide Rafales with folding wings or whatever. Or maybe India just wanted to go ahead with the MiG-29. Or maybe India wants to appease Uncle Sam and buy 20, 30, 40, whatever F-18s. I'm not sure. So, yeah, that's where we are. So that's what the, these are the options that India has vis-a-vis -vis the INS Vikrant. If it is operational now, we need aircraft on it, obviously. I think it can carry 30 aircraft, which is a reasonably okay number. Yeah. So it'll be, so let's see what India goes for. These procedures take a long time, long time, long time, long time. I hope they speed it up and make it operational as soon as possible. So the so the, uh, the warship is now operational. It can, it can uh, sail wherever it wants, but it still needs its uh, contingent of fighter planes. So that's the next step. So I'm not sure. Let, let's see what decision the government makes. Uh, if, if the French can provide Rafales, it's great. Rafales with folding wings. Because India already uses Rafales. The Rafale is an excellent jet, no doubt about it. Uh, so ideally, the French give us Rafales with folding wings, and that would be the best possible option for India. Okay, Samarth says, what's your opinion on Africa's offer to India as they cannot repay certain loans? Should India go ahead with the offer? So what offer is being mentioned over here? Uh, so India has been offering lines of credit to various African nations. Uh, the total line of credit, I, I believe, is about 30 or 40 billion dollars thus far. Around 30, 35, 40 billion dollars, uh, roughly. Yeah, the actual number may be closer to 30 billion dollars, somewhere in that uh, ballpark uh, figure. So it's 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 not one nation; it's a, it's a, it's multiple nations that India has offered credit lines to. So what is a line of credit? We need to first understand that there is a difference between a loan and a line of credit. What the Chinese do is they offer loans with very harsh repayment. Uh, requirements the rates of interest are very high and it's 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 typically a given that that nation will not be able to repay it but what they the chinese do is that they also bribe the various dictators 
you know, who run these nations. So the dictator gets a nice hefty paycheck straight away, lump sum, maybe a few million dollars here and there, and that makes them happy. And then they sign the agreement and then the, the nation has to eventually find a way of repaying the 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 debt or you, the nation has to say, has to give off parts of its actual sovereign assets to China. That is the standard debt trap that the Chinese use in order to colonize Africa. Now, India doesn't do that. India offers lines of credit. What is a line of credit? It's like having a credit card. You, you Let's say you have a credit card with hypothetically one lakh credit limit. So you have a credit card which you can used up to a limit of 1 lakh rupees, let's say, right? Now, you can choose to never use it, your choice. Or you can choose to make a purchase worth, worth 10,000 rupees. So 90% of your credit limit is still uh, empty. So you've taken a, uh, taken a loan, essentially, from the credit card company for 10,000 rupees, and then you have to repay it within a certain, whatever the, the conditions are, right? There will be a certain rate uh, interest rate in a certain time period within which you have to repay it, and you can uh, I think there you can you can choose to pay pay a certain amount of it every month something like that right so it's it's a very flexible arrangement so you can choose to never use it you can choose to spend only some part of it and use only some part of the credit limit or you can choose to use the credit limit to the maximum it's your choice entirely it's a very flexible arrangement so a line of credit is just like that. So India, let's say India offers a certain African nation a $1 billion line of credit. So the African nation can use it. And, and the, there are certain terms and conditions on it. The Typically, the term that India uh, gives to the African nations is that if they use the line of credit for whatever amount of money, they need to purchase whatever goods, material services they are purchasing with this credit from Indian companies. So that benefits India in that way. But the interest rates typically on this line of, on these lines of credit that india offers are low nowhere close to what the chinese do so these are very generous uh, terms that india offers it is in no way predatory in nature very low interest rates and very flexible arrangements and often india has even forgiven certain certain debts if they are not too high you know it's it's happened in the past that india has forgiven certain debts debts because the african nation whatever it was is not in a good condition and that sort of thing so india because of this this arrangement what india is offering india has a very high amount of goodwill in the african nations yeah and they they do realize that taking uh, loans or, or these lines of credit from India is way better than going for China, for, for, for Chinese investments, because that is going to end up, you're going to end up selling your nation, your nation's sovereignty piece by piece to the Chinese. So now what's happened is that certain African nations have are in a position where they are, can't quite pay back the loans or whatever they've taken in credit. So what they have offered is they have opened up their lithium lithium mines to Indian companies and investments. So they will pay back in terms of lithium lithium ore or, or, or actual lithium from their mines. So that is the offer that sir, I'm not sure. I don't think it's been disclosed which African nations have made this offer, but it's more than one. And these, uh, I think we can find out which African nations are, are rich in lithium. Yeah, but they have made this offer to India that we are unable to pay back the cash. So why don't you uh, take repayments of, of whatever we have borrowed from you in terms of lithium ore or actual lithium. So they are opening up their lithium mines to Indian companies to come and invest there. And India, the Indian companies then can then take back the lithium based on whatever rate it is and all. So that uh, you the and that will be considered to be repayment of the debt. So I think it's it's a very good uh, offer they have made. 
they have in no way been forced to make the offer it was their their choice yeah the the indian like i said the the lines of credit are very generous and, and not uh, predatory at all so these african nations have offered lithium to india in exchange for what they owe india in terms of what they've borrowed i think it's a very good thing for india and uh, india should make use of this opportunity and uh, build these investments in african nations have indian companies work in the mines and invest in the mines and maybe develop the mines further and india can take back some lithium and we can use that as a repayment and that that can be an ongoing arrangement even after the debt is repaid we can we can buy purchase lithium from these african uh, nations if if india builds the mining infrastructure further develops 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 it further and all that so i think it's a win win situation for these african nations for india as well because lithium is uh, one of the things that's very much in demand um, all the uh, new electric vehicle technology and all that it depends on lithium ion batteries yes your your cell phone typically uses a lithium ion battery the tesla electric vehicles they use lithium ion batteries uh, your laptops have lithium ion batteries lithium is is a very big deal these days yeah and some of these african nations are very rich in lithium so it's great for india so this is something they have done of their own volition they have not been coerced into doing this they have not been arm twisted into uh, making this offer i think it's a very good offer we need to work out the terms with them and i think india should go ahead with that it's a very good arrangement and it's a win win for both sides so overall a very positive and and good development okay harsh says bharat recorded the quarter growing rate Okay, the first quarter of 2022, the GDP of India grew at 13.5 percent. But then there are some articles in various publications that are say that it's disappointing or whatever. Why? Why is that, sir? Okay, so yeah, uh, the past two years were kind of bad years globally. for all economies lots of economies actually shrank india's economy also shrank in 2020 i believe to a significant percentage yeah because of the uh, covid incident the covid pandemic uh, the lockdowns that ensued the, the, all the businesses went down globally and india also suffered from that yeah now in 2022 in the first quarter the economy has grown at 13.5% in the first quarter that's the figures that have been put out so india's economy has again gone has again started expanding it has already gone ahead of its 2020 mark and india's economy overall has now surpassed the overall economic uh, economy of the uk so india is now the fifth largest economy in the world the uk is number 6 before that india was number 6 uk was number 5 so india's economy is again growing very well 13.5 in the first quarter that is very very uh, encouraging uh, and if we can sustain this sort of growth growth even 10% even 8% plus growth for the next 20 years india is going to be a really massive economy in 20 years in, in just one generation's time yeah so i think it's it's very good uh, and the indian government did not heed the advice of all the western economists and indian born western economists like uh, abhijit banerjee uh, amartya sen and the incredible mr raghuram rajan who were uh, who were making certain recommendations to india yeah as to how india should proceed with its economy during the lockdown during the pandemic india did not do that india was fiscally very prudent and now you're seeing all the western economies which did those things they are kind of in the doldrums they are seeing negative growth they are seeing they are witnessing recession and they are witnessing shocking rates of inflation india is going through none of that india is doing very well so india the indian government the prime minister the finance minister etc the 
they did the right thing in in there was a, you know a slowdown of the economy that was inevitable but now india is surging ahead 13.5% growth is incredible incredible very very encouraging very positive uh, thing for india it looks like india may cross 5 trillion dollars dollars by 2025 by the end of 2025 india seems to be on target for that so that is in extremely good development india the outlook is very positive for india india is one of the few nations in the world right now that can be optimistic about the future the long term future right india has a young population india has a booming economy there is so much infrastructure development needed in india so much growth potential in india overall very positive some articles say it's disappointing they can go to hell who cares it's the same old tired people who keep on harumphing about everything that goes that, that happens in india if something goes wrong they will they will shout it from the they will tom tom it from the tops of the mountains if something is good they will try to portray it as something disappointing ignore those people we know who the usual suspects are we know who the what the publications are ignore those people look at the numbers don't look at people's opinions don't look at people's interpretations don't look at people's opinions everybody has a nose everybody has an opinion ignore opinions just look at the hard numbers and then you can make your own judgments using the goddamn intelligence that god gave you all right so i don't care whether some people are disappointed and whether some people have written long articles so that it's nothing great and all that they are jealous <laughs> and and they are disappointed that india is doing well yeah so india is doing very well the economy is growing it's growing faster than what i had hoped for which is i'm i'm extremely pleased to see that and let's uh, let's keep this going yeah india will most likely most likely seems to be on track to eclipse the 5 trillion dollar mark by 2025 and then the next figure is 10 which we need to all work towards yeah so this is great very good development and especially good nice to see us eclipse the uk the former colonial oppressor yeah so they they are experiencing 0.2% growth or something like that or 1.2% growth whatever it is and we are witnessing more than 10 times the growth good good for them okay shashikant says what is your take on india participating in vostok land drill but not part of the sea drill is india doing the right thing according to you okay so what is the vostok thing <clears throat> so russia has these uh, military exercises that happen that take place every year so there is the zapad exercise zapad the word zapad means west in russian there is the zapad exercise which happened last year 2021 zapad 21 this year we have the vostok 22 vostok the word vostok means east in russia so zapad vostok center which means center and kavkaz which means the caucasus region of russia which is the south part of russia let's go to the map and take a look at what what it means So where is the map? The map is here. So the Caucasus region is over here. The Black Sea, Caspian Sea region, and the landmass between that—that that is the Caucasus region. That's where typically the Kavkaz exercises take place. The uh, Zapad exercises take place in the west of Russia, in which includes Belarus. The the last time in la- last year, I think Belarus was also part of that, mm-hmm. and various nations take part. So we had Vostok, which is in the west. Zap. Uh, sorry zapad in the west kavkaz in the south center is typically somewhere in the central region of russia and vostok happens in the far east of russia these are strategic level military exercises not te- tactical level these are large scale military exercises and they serve to demonstrate they serve many purposes 
they serve to demonstrate Russia's uh, overall capabilities, military capabilities, using all the various branches of the military, the uh, the the army, the navy, the air force, and whatever else is involved. Yeah, and various nations take part in it. They see they serve to. Uh, prove various military strategic concepts and various tactics and strategies they are planning to use in 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 an actual war and it has all these multiple purposes and many nations especially nations that are friendly with russia participate in this exercise so this year we have the vostok 22 exercises which are happening in the far east somewhere here of russia so india is participating in it even the chinese i believe are participating in this and india is participating in the land based uh, exercises not the sea based exercises so like i said there is army navy air force all of that is involved so there will be some component of this happening at sea some of it on land and so on and so forth so india is participating in the land based portion of the vostok uh, exercises so well it's good India doesn't have to participate in everything. And obviously, there is the, the the pressure from the US. The Americans are obviously not happy that India is participating at all. So what, what's the what's the point of all this? So first of all, it demonstrates, it serves to demonstrate to the Russians that we are very much friendly with you. And we consider, consider you to be a friendly nation. And we trust you enough to, uh, to participate in joint exercises with you. Yeah. It's a signal to Russia. India and Russia always have had very good relations, very warm relations, and not fake warm relations out of uh, political experience, geopolitical experience, but actually very warm people-to-people -people relations dating back 70 plus years, even, even longer than that. So India and Russia, there is a, a significant element of trust, which is rare in geopolitics. So India is participating, and, and, and this is the signaling that's going to Russia, that we trust you and we are, we are a friendly nation and we consider to you, you to be our friends and that sort of thing. To the US, it sends a message that we may be working with you, but we will always look out for our own interests. You may not like the fact that we are doing these exercises with Russia, but we're going to go ahead and do it. So deal with it. That is the message India is sending to the US. It is India is sending a message to the, to the Chinese that you may be currently in, in go, on good terms with Russia, but we are also here. We are also part of this. And you can't do a thing about that. That's the message, messaging to China. Now, if India is not participating in the entire spectrum of exercises it's also a small concession to the us that we will participate but we will not take part in everything so india is playing the multipolar game india is saying we will engage with multiple people with multiple powers and we will look out for our own interests so the americans they don't like it that's their problem but we will also give a small concession to the us and not by not participating in the sea based exercises and that sort of thing yeah so that's the kind of uh, uh, messaging and signaling india is doing to multiple nations, it, it is the multipolar game. But at the end of the day, India is going to look out for its own national interest. And that is what everybody needs to keep in mind. That is the biggest message that's going out to everybody. So that, that's what's happening over here. Okay, Udit says, what are your thoughts on the last president of the USSR, Mikhail Gorbachev? Was he someone who genuinely cared about the welfare of his people such that he willingly accepted Western values? Or was he a Western stooge who crumbled the USSR deliberately and allowed American MNCs into his country for his own, for his own gain? Aryan says, what do you think of Mikhail Gorbachev? Is he really the greatest peacekeeper as claimed by the West? And if the Soviet Union had not collapsed, would the world have been more in order now? If you want to see where Mikhail Gorbachev stood, 
Yeah. Just see who praised him the most when he died. Who praised him the most when he died? It is the West that praised him the most when he died. Was there any praise forthcoming from the former USSR? I don't think there was any praise, praise forthcoming from there. So it shows you that the people of the former USSR, the people of Russia, etc., they do not hold Mr. Gorbachev in very high regard. The truth is that they, they regard him as a sellout and a Western stooge, as a traitor, essentially, to their own people. What did Mr. Gorbachev do? He presided over the end stage weakening of the USSR. He did this perestroika and glasnost reforms in which you, essentially it was self-criticism, admission that the Russian regime, the Russian system is not good and the Western system is better actually, that sort of admission. So that, that caused a further ideological weakening of the USSR. And then he presided over the actual dissolution, the breakup of the USSR. Eventually the USSR became so weak that various republics, the Central Asian republics, etc., they seceded. They, they declared their independence and there was nothing the USSR was willing to do about it. In the past, if anybody dared say a word about it, there would be tanks in that in the next day in, in that region. Tanks, military tanks, that's happened. So, you know, there is an element of force when it comes to geopolitics, when it comes to holding your nation together. Yeah. And Mr. Gorbachev uh, presided over and he, and, and he essentially ensured that the USSR breaks up in fragments. And uh, so, yeah, he you, you could consider him to be a Western stooge. The Russians certainly considered him to be a Western stooge. Yeah. And whatever he did ended up destroying the, the Soviet nation and the Russian economy. After him, it was a it was this very mediocre person called Mr. Yeltsin who came to power. And Mr. Yeltsin came to power because of all the deeds that Mr. Gorbachev himself did. He, Mr. Gorbachev set the stage for someone like Yeltsin to come to power. Mr. Yeltsin was even more of a Western stooge. He deliberately and systematically destroyed Russia's economy. Systematically destroyed everything the Russian, um, the USSR had built up over 70, whatever, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever. Eh? Yep. So that's what happened. Uh, if he was the greatest peacekeeper, no, he was not a peacekeeper. I mean, he he handed everything over to the West. That's what he did. So that's why the West loves him very much. Uh, Mr. Gorbachev's greatest legacy is that Pizza Hut ad. Uh, I'm sure you can still see it on YouTube. Just, just type in Gorbachev Pizza Hut. That was his greatest legacy. Selling out the Russian economy to the Western MNCs. So the Russian economy was destroyed during Yeltsin's time and Mr. Gorbachev was making ads for Pizza Hut asking Russians to to, to to put money into Western MNCs. Yeah, so that's his legacy overall. A very mediocre person, the person who presided over the destruction and the dissolution of the USSR. I'm not saying the USSR was a great thing. It was oppressive in, in, in a lot of ways on its own people, on various other, other nations as well. That's true. But any great nation, any great superpower has elements of this to it. Yeah. So overall, his legacy is like uh, nothing, nothing to write home about. Okay, Asmita says, what's your take on various claims and reports on China's illegal occupation since 2020 of some of the Indian territory in Ladakh? Whether it is Indian territory or disputed land along the LSE, which is in between, what's the best course of action for India in this matter? See, the Chinese have encroached onto, into Indian territory since the 1950s. Yeah, they have been doing this and they have refused to demarcate the border. So now, now what we have is that the Indian army and the Indian nation 
ensures that the Chinese don't come beyond a certain line. They are always constantly trying to push forward. Now the situation is reasonably stable. There are these incursions that happened. I think India is also doing certain actions of its own into the, 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 the territory that the Chinese claim to be their own. Yeah, that's there's this on, ongoing tug of war. Everything China occupies is illegal. The Chinese occupation of Tibet itself is illegal, right? Now, some media reports keep coming in that the, the Chinese are building a village in Indian occupied in Indian territory, or they have encroached three kilometers here or three kilometers there. And typically, these media reports come from various certain certain quarters, which are very much anti-India. I'm talking about the Indian media. Yeah, there are certain elements of the Indian media, the legacy media. There are very much anti-India and anti-whatever, uh, uh, whatever political dispensation is in power today. Right? Their overall approach is anti-India, and they are often on the payroll of various outside forces. I'm not taking any names. You can leave it to your imagination if you want to. Yeah, and they typically come up with these reports. And when you fact-check the reports, you will realize that whatever village is being built is on territory they have been occupying for a very long time. For a very long time. That's what's happening. Recently, some just last week or this week itself, uh, reports appear in Twitter of some some video of Chinese soldiers doing something on Indian territory. And when you fact check that that again, it you realize it's on their side of the LAC, the line of actual control. So these media agencies have been doing this constantly, trying to make the Indian public lose faith in the Indian military and the Indian government. What's actually happening now is that India is in the strongest position in the past so many decades vis-a-vis -vis China. India has taken a very hardline approach to any Chinese incursion. We saw it in, in the various clashes that happened in the past two, three years. There was a Doklam thing in which India stood firm and refused to allow China to intrude into, into the territory that is Bhutanese territory. Yeah? Uh, then we had the, uh, uh, the, the, the clash that happened uh, in which 20 Indian soldiers died in like 3,000 Chinese soldiers died, not 3,000, but like 50 or maybe 100. Yeah, they have tried to cover it up, the Chinese, and that sort of thing. So India is standing very firm. This government has had the most hardline approach against Chinese incursions and aggression of, of any government we can think of. Yeah. So, uh, so the thing is this. Don't depend on the media. Don't believe everything the media says. Uh, what's actually happening at the LSC is not supposed to be known. Okay, it is not, it is not for us to know it. These things, they have to be kept kept secret by the government for various reasons, for national security reasons, because there are elements within the Indian nation, within the Indian population, who are, we know that they are in some ways anti-India. There is the 2.5 front war that very high-ranking people have spoken about. There are elements within India, you know. So we cannot reveal everything to the Indian population. Certain things are always kept under wraps, no matter which nation you're in, whether it's the US, whether it's Russia, whether it's China, whether it's France, whether it's Switzerland, whether it is the UK. There are things that concern national security and they are kept secret from your own public for the good of the nation and the long term prosperity and national interest. Yeah. So and there will always be certain elements within your nation that will, will that will try to serve foreign interests. Look at who is funding these various media outlets. Look at where the sources of funding are, and then you will know. Just You just have to follow the money. But nobody has the, will do the due diligence, and the people will believe whatever is being said. So here's the deal. Don't trust everything the media is throwing at you. The media wants sensationalism. The media, much of the media is anti-India, the Indian media, much of it, unfortunately. The best course of action for India is to grow its economy, 
if you grow your economy, you will grow your military. If you grow your military, the Chinese will be more and more wary of trying to tangle with India. Simple solution. It's a simple solution to all the problems. The best course of India, action for India, is to focus on growing its economy and then correspondingly making its military more and more powerful. That is the only solution to all the problems. Vis-a-vis -vis China, vis-a-vis -vis any other nation. Yeah. Prajwal says, what's your opinion on Mount Kailash, a sacred place for Hindus, being currently part of Chinese-occupied territory? Okay, let's take a look at where Mount Kailash is. It's in the Himalayas, north of India. It's, it's in Tibet, essentially, what we now call Tibet. I apologize for the incredible noise that's, that's coming in, but that's just how it is. Mount Kailash. Where is Mount Kailash? Let's take a look at Mount Kailash. And they have some goddamn Chinese name over it right now. Tangrin Bokwe Peak or whatever. So it's over here. Right? So it is Mount Kailash, but, it did, but Google is now giving it a Chinese name. Right? Google is banned in China, but Google gives it a Chinese name. Can you believe it? So that makes you question what Google is actually doing. And if you remember, Google's boss is an Indian. Funny things going on. So Mount Kailash is over here. Yeah, it is in Tibet, Chinese occupied Tibet. It is the one of the holiest places in Hinduism, in Buddhism, in Jainism, in the born religion of Tibet, and perhaps the Sikhism. I'm not sure what Sikhism is, uh, whether the Sikhs continue, uh, consider Mount Kailash to be sacred or not. I'm not sure about that. But certainly in Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, which is all the Dharmic umbrella, yeah. So Mount Kailash is one of the most sacred sites. It is the abode of Lord Shiva himself. And it is currently in Chinese occupied territory. What is my opinion about this? I think it is completely unacceptable. Unacceptable. It is a shame for all Indians, as long as you are living and breathing, if, if, if Mount Kailash is occupied by the Chinese. And the Mansarovar Lake. It is a matter of great shame for us. And we need to take proactive measures to ensure that this illegal and despicable occupation of this holy site is ended as soon as possible how do we end the occupation of the of of mount kailash by the chinese by growing india's economy making it cross 10 trillion dollars of uh, in value that way uh, india's military might will will increase and then we will be able to evict the chinese from tibet that's the solution to all the problems right so work on that Okay, Lage Raho online says, uh, at present, our subcontinent, including all neighboring countries, are facing many natural calamities. Despite criticism of the dedicated voters, Sri Modiji is showing compassion, verbal and materialistic towards all nations, even to enemy nations. What is the significance of this geopolitical move? What's your take, big bro? <laughs> okay. So what, what uh, is being asked essentially is the, the, the situation in Pakistan. In Pakistan right now, you have, you have this terrifying, terrific, terrible flooding that's happening. Uh, I heard more than a third of the, of the nation was underwater a couple of days ago. I'm not sure what the situation is today. So Mr. Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi had tweeted uh, condolences and, and, and uh, that sort of thing, you know, to the Pakistanis saying that it's terrible, this has happened and we wish you well and that, something of the, of, to, the, to that effect, you know, uh, uh, a compassionate tweet 
about what's happening in Pakistan. And maybe there was the possibility of India sending some material aid, maybe monetary aid, financial aid or some other kind of aid to Pakistan. It's not been decided yet whether it's, it's going to be done or not. But yeah, there is the possibility that India may send some aid to Pakistan in, in its hour of need. So lots of people are upset. Lots of people say it's, it's a terrible thing. We are feeding the snake. We are feeding our enemy. The, the Pakistanis have always indulged in terrorism against India. They want India destroyed. They want India dead. But why are we helping them? See, it's like this. Whatever aid India gives to Pakistan, if, if, it, if, if we actually send some aid to Pakistan, it's not going to be a massive amount of aid. It's going to be maybe... 10 million dollars worth, maybe 100 million dollars, which in the grand scheme of things is peanuts. Yeah. Now it's like this. When you have an enemy that you want to beat up in the future, and maybe you want to dismantle the enemy completely. Yeah. You want to annihilate the enemy in the future. So there's this guy, this bad guy. You are planning, you have a plan in your mind. You're going to beat him up and you're going to dismantle him in the future. What you should do right now is appear to be very compassionate to him. Yeah. Offer aid, say nice things, so that in the future, if there is a fight between you and him, people will remember that all of this, that you have always been nice. See, before the uh, Balakot thing happened, Prime Minister Modi made it a point to actually visit the, uh, the Pakistani Prime Minister's house once, right? An unscheduled stop to uh, into Pakistan. He met Mr. Sharif. He even uh, went to his grand, Mr. Sharif's granddaughter's wedding and he blessed the, the girl and, and, her, and her husband and that sort of thing. So it was a very nice, compassionate, peace, peaceful gesture. So when, in, when you do all this, you demonstrate to the world that you are trying for peace. And then in the future, when there is a fight or war, you can always say that we tried our best. We tried our best, so don't, don't blame us. right? So if today India gives some aid to Pakistan and some nice tweets are forthcoming, why are you getting upset about it? In the future, we will deal with them as they need to be dealt with. It's, it's coming. I have always said this, I'll say it again, Pakistan is a temporary nation. Why do I say Pakistan is a temporary nation? Because it's going to be dismantled. I wish the people of Pakistan all the best. I have no nothing against them. I wish them all the best. I wish them happiness and prosperity to them and their children. But the nation of Pakistan is an evil terrorist nation. It will be dismantled by the Indian state. It's coming. It's not far. So when you are planning that, when you are planning that sort of thing, it, it, it is nice to, to, to make all these gestures, yeah, so that the world, the media will, will always have to make this or make a point of saying it that India has always tried to tried for peace and India has made all these various gestures. We India even gave aid to the Pakistanis in the time of need, but see how the Pakistanis are behaving. So that's how it is. That is the geopolitical significance of these moves. All right. So don't get upset about these. These are, these are small gestures. They don't cost much to India. All right. Okay. Peking Owl says, sorry to say, sorry to say, Abhijit, you're completely wrong. There are no submarines in the world that cost $100 million. Each sub at least costs $700 plus million. Submarines are expensive as well. Abhijit, you're completely mistaken and completely misguided and wrong. Though I completely agree <laughs> with him that aircraft carriers are obsolete. This was a naval exercise between the U.S. Navy and Sweden. There was a naval exercise between the U.S. Navy and Sweden. The Swedish Navy actually sunk a nuclear aircraft carrier with a cheap diesel-electric submarine by passing the whole carrier strike group. This was a naval exercise, not a war. It was not an actual sinking. It was a it was a fake sinking. Let me show you what 
what what we're talking about there is this article okay in in one of the very prominent american publications the national interest let's read out from this sweden's super stealth submarines are so lethal they sank a us aircraft carrier sank in quotes what does it mean so this article is from 2016 november 2016 six years ago less than six years ago five and a half years ago in 2005 the uss ronald reagan a newly constructed 6.2 billion dollar aircraft carrier sank after being hit by multiple torpedoes fortunately this did not happen in actual combat it was simulated as part of a war game pitting a carrier task force including numerous anti submarine escorts against hsms gotland a swedish submarine a small swedish diesel powered submarine displacing 1600 tons yet despite making numerous attack runs on the reagan the gotland was never detected this outcome was replicated time and time again over two years of war games with opposing destroyers and nuclear attack submarines succumbing to the stealthy swedish submarine naval analyst norman polmar said the gotland ran rings around the american carrier task force and so on and so forth the us specialists anti submarine specialists were demoralized by the experience right so how was the gotland able to evade the reagan's elaborate anti submarine defenses involving multiple ships and aircraft employing a multitude of sensors and even even more importantly how was a relatively cheap submarine costing around 100 million dollars roughly the cost of a single f35 able to accomplish that okay so that's what the article says so there you have it this submarine cost 100 million dollars 100 million dollars in 2016 maybe it cost 120 million dollars today 6 years on the line considering inflation it's a possibility but i was right that submarines do cost 100 million dollars one of the best submarines in the world the swedish gotland class submarine costs only around 100 million dollars that's how cheap and inexpensive it is it is a diesel electric submarine right so uh yes it was a naval exercise which was repeated multiple time times over two years and every time this submarine was able to evade the anti submarine defenses of the entire aircraft carrier strike group it was able to penetrate the defenses and take out the uh us aircraft carrier in a simulated exercise that tells you that a single submarine can take out aircraft carriers that's how vulnerable aircraft carriers are today and that also tells you that i was right that a submarine can indeed cost just 100 million dollars the same price as an american f35 fighter plane which is the point which i was always making why doesn't in india invest in cheap in cheap submarines in cheap inexpensive submarines why can't india do that an aircraft carrier costs at least 5 billion dollars you can have 50 submarines for that for that price and see how lethal good submarines are so that's why india needs to invest in good submarines maybe india should buy the swedish submarine company which produces the gotland class submarines and that's sort of thing i apologize for the noise i can't hear myself that's how it is anyway okay shodit goel says i guess the government has listened to the advices and they've tasked cochin shipyard limited to construct 16 attack boats which will be equivalent to stealth frigates these boats will be capable of carrying at least 4 to 6 cruise missiles each with a mounted gun system i am so very satisfied by the navy's design bureau yeah i think uh, it's a good thing i don't know if they've listened to me or not but yeah uh, there are 16 attack boats i think these are anti submarine warfare ships 
light, smallish ships that are being built. You can call them attack boats or anti-submarine warfare cruisers or whatever, stealth frigates or whatever. 16 of them are being, being, being built. And I think they will be all operational or, or at least constructed by 2026, 2026. It's a very good move. Like I always keep saying, we need numbers, numbers, quantity as a quality of its own. And this is a very, very good and important step in that direction. Yes. So, yes, 16 uh, war warships are being built. And it's a very good thing. I am also very happy and satisfied to see this. And these will be... Uh, but they will, I'm sure they will carry cruise missiles, maybe the Brahmos missile, and they will also have anti-submarine capabilities, which means they will be submarine killers by design. So that's a great thing. So this is a very positive step. It's a positive step in the right direction. We need a lot more of that. We need more submarines as well. So yeah, good, good. We are, we are seeing some good things happening. Okay, Raghav Bharadwaj says, what do you make of the current state of the Indian Air Force? With the MiGs, Mirages, Jaguars close to being phased out, don't you think we are not too concerned about it as much as we should be? There has been no significant update and so on and so forth, so on and so forth. A long story. Uh, please make your, the questions shorter, please. I really request you. Uh, what's the question? What's the state of the Air Force? Okay, what is the current state of the Air Force? The Indian Air Force is not where it should be. We need a lot more planes. We have 28, 29 squadrons that are operational right now. The, the sanctioned state, uh, the number is we need at least 10, 12 squadrons more. I think we need 40 plus squadrons. The more the more planes you have, the better you are as an air force. I don't mind India having a 1,000 fighter plane air force. What's wrong with that? The more you have, the better uh, better off you are. The Chinese, look at the, the, look at the strength of their air force. They have well in excess of a thousand fighter planes some of them may be older some of them may be close to being obsolete but they have the numbers they can deploy them when needed the more aircraft you have the better you are as a nation as an air force so i think india needs to stop going for lots of different kinds of aircraft we have like uh, like is said over here the jaguars the mirages the tejas the rafale and and what not so i think we need to uh, if we if we mix also mig 21s and so on so I think we need more aircraft. As a stopgap measure, we can we can perhaps buy more Rafals because we are op already operating close to th 36 Rafals. We will have 36 very soon. We should perhaps go in for 36 more, maybe 100 more if required, if we can make them fit on the aircraft carrier. Yeah. So I think if we do purchase more foreign aircraft, there is this uh, MRFA tender about purchasing foreign aircraft. If we go for that, we should do it quickly. We should acquire more Rafals, not the F-16, not anything else, just the Rafals, because we already operate that. If you have too many different aircraft, we need to have lots of different supply chains for spare parts and all. It's a it's a logistical nightmare. So go for more Rafals, maybe 36 more, maybe 100 more, whatever is whatever makes sense. In the meanwhile, develop the Indian indigenous aircraft, the Tejas Mark II, the AMCA, you know, advanced medium fighter aircraft and, and whatever else. So that's what needs to happen, and I hope we are we are in good shape by 2030. Let me take a let me take a look at the comments. What people are saying? Are you able to hear the noise outside? I mean, the thickest of walls are defeated by this noise. Okay, what do we have? Well, there's nothing much. Nothing much about the noise. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Let's go back. 
यस गणपति बापा मोरिया हर बार मारोइंगट नाउ यस यस ओके Going back to the question, Man Vashishtha says, "What are your views on Neville Chamberlain? Do you think he was the person who tried until the end to prevent the Second World War, or was he weak as he gave Hitler the impression of non-aggression while he was out annexing countries like Austria and Czechoslovakia?" Or uh, Neville Chamberlain was one of the uh, one. See, one can see his entire career and his actions in hindsight now. Yeah. he turned out to be one of the well weakest one of the weaker uh, uk prime ministers he, you you could say that he sold out sold out to hitler he appeased hitler when there was when the when the time called for strong measures resolute measures he indulged in appeasement against adolf hitler in 1938 the nazis were threatening to invade the swedentenland region of what is now Czechoslovakia it was once part of the Austro-Hungarian empire then it was part of this new nation of Czechoslovakia because which was born after the end of the first world war right so the german majority region called swedentenland was part of Czechoslovakia and hitler said that it should be part of germany and he was threatening to invade Czechoslovakia and take over the swedentenland and then there was this entire threat of war again in europe so this guy Neville Chamberlain the prime minister of the UK he made i think three trips to to germany to negotiate with uh, adolf hitler and try to uh, preclude the possibility of war and uh, at the end of the third trip he came back to london he was met on the airport on the airport tarmac by journalists and he was brandishing this piece of paper saying that see i have hitler's signature he will not go to war and there was a big concession that was made to the germans that swedentenland would go back to germany that sort of thing so at the end of the day he was not able to prevent war because the next year germany invaded anyway they invaded czechoslovakia they invaded half of poland the the soviets took the rest the other half of poland and that all led to the, the second world war so if his intention was to stop a war from happening he failed completely and he made his country look very weak and docile and he essentially was seen as somebody who tried his best to appease adolf hitler and at the end of the day none of that bore any fruit so that's that's the truth about neville chamberlain whether we like it or not okay i'm not sure if you can continue like this it's way too noisy yeah very <laughs> right okay let's let's take some more questions Man Vashishta says, "Which mistake do you think proved more expensive for Napoleon Bonaparte?" <laughs> okay, let's just continue. I let's just. I, the thing is, I can't hear myself. Anyway. Man Vashishta says, "Which mistake do you think proved more expensive for Napoleon Bonaparte? Firstly, invading the Russian Empire, which resulted in the loss of approximately six hundred thousand soldiers, or removing the Spanish royal dynasty and placing his own brother as the ruler of Spain, which eventually led to the Peninsular War, a kind of guerrilla war, which resulted in thousands of deaths of French soldiers." Uh, in my opinion, uh, the mistake which was the most Which was the worst mistake was the attempt to invade Russia. 
So Napoleon attempted to invade Russia. He actually was able to capture Moscow. But it was a victory that gave him nothing. Because the Russians deliberately withdrew from Moscow, but not after burning the city down. The Russians burned the city down, the city of Moscow. And then they left the city and they said, okay, Napoleon, go ahead. Enjoy your victory in a burnt out city. So Napoleon, I think he spent a month or so in Moscow, not enjoying it at all because he had got nothing. The Russians kept on withdrawing from, withdrawing from the French. They adopted a scorched earth policy, destroying all the farmland, destroying all the villages so that the French could gain nothing. See, when you are invading a territory, you have to live off the land. You have to get your resources, your food stuff, everything from the land you're invading and conquering. And if you can't do that, you lose. You know, it doesn't work. So, yeah, that's what happened. And uh, at the end of the day, the French, it was a huge disaster for the French, especially because of the onset of the Russian winter, which claimed, um, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of French soldiers. At the end, it was a disaster. And it precipitated the decline of Napoleon as, as a ruler and it led to his eventual defeat. Yeah. Okay, so that's where we are. I think I'm going to have to stop this because it's just too noisy. I can't even hear myself. So we're going to stop this here a little prematurely, but it's just too noisy over here. So, uh, yeah, I have many more questions, but I don't think I can take them. I can't hear my own, my own voice. Should I take more questions? Do you want me to take? I, I think I'll stop here now. All right, we're going to end it here. Thank you very much all. And next week, I hope there will be no, no such noise. So until next week, take care. Thank you. And uh, bye.